I left the part in San Francisco. They'll never get. There's really only two kinds of people in this planet. Those are the people who listen to excuses and preambles. And those who don't, those who want to get to what the person's really saying with a lot, without a lot of build-up, without a lot of cheap psychological tricks designed to soften you up so you can be persuaded by whatever they are about to sell you. If you write there, I don't care. I'll drive myself. I think I'm in group two. And I think I've been there since grade school. I don't mean to get maudlin here, but, you know, my, my brother died in Vietnam when I was in grade school. And, bef you know, before that happened, I was just a mildly obnoxious, uh, you know, I won't say I was a handful. I was just a mildly obnoxious, uh, very, very minor league disruptor. I mean, I think I threw an egg at the school one time. Yes, I am an original gangster. Anyway, but after my brother died, looking back on it, I think I'd be, you know, I kind of upped my game. I became a lot more of a handful, a lot more disruptive, a lot less willing to listen to anybody, anything anybody had to say, especially people in school. I just didn't want any part of it, okay? That happens. And so anyway, as a result of that, I started spending a lot more time in the teacher's lounge. I started spending more time in the principal's office. I started spending more time over in parent-teacher conferences. And the subject was, what are we going to do with Colin? And they lots and lots of, there were lots and lots of preambles. Well, Colin is this, Colin's that, Colin's smart, Colin's good, Colin's this, Colin's that, except or but, then we get to the meat of it, bam, 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 bam. And that's why, you know, we got to figure out a way to stop him from acting the way he has been acting. Uh, so looking back on, on these preambles, I know that when people are giving you the preambles, I mean, there's even a book about it. The book's called Cheap Psychological Tricks. So if I want to sell you something, I, you know, I have, to, I have to kind of manufacture some empathy. So say I'm going up to a little a fella, little or big. And, um, you know, and, I, and I, I say, hey, fella, hey, little fella, it's Colin. Hey, listen, sorry to hear what happened last night. Listen, you don't have to tell me, man. I know. Believe me. Believe me, man. I know. I know so much. The 400, 4 million years of oppression you and your brothers and sisters, African-Americans, have gone through uh, over that period of time. Oh, man, I am so down with what happened to you guys and what a terrible, terrible, terrible thing it was. I'm so sorry. But, here comes the but. Um, do you suppose you could figure, you know, you could kind of get in your head that you're not really supposed to be killing cops or killing 17-year-old kids, white kids for their car or killing or or beating the piss out of old white people breaking every bone in their face. Just do you suppose you could figure out your way to do that? And then the little fellow would say back to me, "Oh, does that mean we don't have to go to jail?" And I would say, "No, but 
I just wanted to mollify you. I just wanted to soften you up for the fact that you have to go to jail for getting caught. Yeah, we're going to look at those exact stories here in a minute. But really, when you do the preamble, when you do the mollifying, I mean, it's not really aimed at the person you're... In a way, it is. Sometimes it is. Like, yeah, if you want to really empathize, you really got, you really have to persuade a person that's aimed at them. But I would say most of the time, it's really for your own benefit. So you can walk away from a relatively unpleasant transaction, like the one I just described, and you could say, hey, man, I gave the fella a fair shot. I let him know I'm on his side, even though he's got to go to jail for the rest of his life for killing that cop, that female cop in, in Newport News, Virginia. Hey, I hope I made him feel good. I'm sure it made myself feel good by, you know, empathizing with the brother. But that's really what it's all about, isn't it? It's like making us feel good as we give some bad news or we try to sell a piece of BS to somebody who probably ordinarily would be expected not to buy into it. And so that's the way I treated this article from the Columbia Spectator, as in Columbia University. This came out a day or two ago, and it is written by no less than the executive board of the Women of Color Pre-Law Society, Columbia. And so here's what touched off the letter. It was just, what, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, seems like a couple hours ago, to tell you the truth, that Tessa Major was killed in Harlem. So you remember, Tessa Major was a student at Barnard College. By the way, if you go to Barnard, by definition, you are down with the cause. It's a woman's school, kind of a sister college, kind of an anachronism next to Columbia. So if you go to Barnard, you are down with every single cause on the planet. But uh, this time, maybe last spring, people in Barnard, there's a video of a bunch of white kids, about 50 to 100 white kids, maybe one or two fellas and lovely ladies in the room. They're in this room, they're shouting like black power slogans about cops. I think some of them even had some obscenities in them. And all of a sudden, it's all about because these students, these Barnard students, believed that the Barnard police were being unfair to a couple of fellas who who walked onto their campus from Harlem, didn't go to the school, didn't have any reason to be at the school. And the students did not approve of the way the cops gave those fellas the bums rush. Flash forward six months later, a park next to Columbia, next to Barnard in Harlem, a college that a park that everybody in living memory that ever went to Columbia or Barnard who spent any time around there knows that's a no-go zone for white people. You don't go there. It's dangerous. Except nobody will tell you that in the orientation. Oh, yeah, they'll tell you a million ways from Sunday what happens if a guy, you know, comes up to you and says, Hey, sweetheart, you're looking good. You want to go get a cheeseburger down at the student dispensary? Oh, that's rape. Okay, so they give full out 27 forms for that. And that guy will be kicked out of school within a couple of hours. But as far as anybody looking at the students and saying, Hey, Watch out for that park over there. I think it's called Morningside Park. We've had a lot of trouble with students going in there thinking that because they're down with the cause, the locals are going to be down with them. Yeah, that park is Harlem. We're in Harlem. 
And last I checked, the fellas and lovely ladies aren't really that down with us. They don't like us that much. Sometimes it gets real, and sometimes, you know, it gets bad. They kill us. So that's what happened to Tessa Major. Down with the cause. Freshman. Barnard College. Goes into the park. Meets up with the three fellas. One of them stabs her, and she is now dead. So that was a few months ago. And I remember right after that happened, even just a couple days after it happened, we started seeing a smattering of the social justice warriors coming out and reminding people that the fellas and lovely ladies in Harlem are really victims of white racism. They're victims of the gentrification that Columbia is bringing to them. So let's just keep that in mind when, we're, when we start looking for the killers, right? So this comes from the pre-law women of color, the wax, the pre-law society. And so anyway, we're going to skip the preamble, okay? The preamble is like, oh man, we're really sorry that chick, oh, what's her name again? Uh, whatever the hell her name is. Yeah, we're really sorry that white chick that got killed by some black guys. And man, it's really terrible, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really sad. But then like the rest of the letter goes into the story of how black people are treated unfairly and how we have to use this murder as an example to educate people about how unfair we treat black people and how we have to make sure we're not treating the black people of Harlem unfairly as we investigate this murder. So let's just plunge into the letter about half, about two th one third of the way in. As members of the Barnard and Columbia community, we are also concerned about the impact of the university's historical and recent gentrification and policing policies and their impacts on residents in Harlem. Remember, this is a letter about a white girl getting murdered by three black kids in Harlem, okay? For example, incipient gentrification efforts in the late 1940s were marked by the creation of Morningside Heights, a cold, you know, coalition of people that apparently did all sorts of bad things. Next paragraph. Ensuring that no one is mistreated during the process of this investigation and, the in and that the investigation results in a response that is not limited to just criminal prosecution will make the Barnard Columbia community and the larger Harlem community in which we reside feel safer. Wow. So this isn't just a simple criminal prosecution. There are other things that are just as important as finding the killer. And more important, I'm translating now, more important than finding the killer is reminding everybody about the white racism that caused those black people to kill that Barnard student in the first damn place. Back to the article. It is essential that the response of this investigation engages in a form of restorative justice that focuses, I, pr I promise you, I'm not making this up, restorative justice that focuses on the root causes of why anyone, especially middle-aged school children, would engage in this kind of violence. Justice must include actively interrogating and correcting the roots and effects of institutional oppression, gentrification, poverty, and other structural forces. Oh, by the way, all those things she just mentioned, those are all white things, okay? So we're going to investigate them. We're going to question them. It's all, we're going to go find some white people. 
We're going to go find some white people to blame for this thing. Let me just read a few more sentences. A just and fair process will also ensure that both communities have a better sense of trust in the school and New York City policing, which both groups have had fraught relations with in the past, as demonstrated by some re- some group who made a report on the police who said every cop sucks and every black person is an angel. Okay, I made that last clause up. We're requesting that Barnard and Columbia work with community organizations to make Harlem a safe area for all of its residents. Our solution must be to unify the surround with the surrounding community to protect everyone and, and ensure all of our safety. It is essential that in, in ensuring our students' safety, we do not make others feel unsafe. Working side by side with community-based organizations and partners will help to ensure that we do not exclude certain members of the Morning Heights, Morningside Heights community. We need to increase staff that engages with Morningside Heights and Harlem residents to make sure we hear and advocate for their needs. What if their needs are they, you know, their their biggest need is they don't want black people being held responsible for crime against white people because White people deserve it. What if that's their big need? Anyway, this thing just goes on and on and on. They turn this girl's murder into an, into an occasion of investigating white racism and push this girl Tessa Major off to the side. And let us just say it. If Tessa were on that campus right now, she may have very well been one of the people who signed this letter. I mean, that's how suicidal people are, white people are, Asian people are, who are down with the cause in that area. It's suicidal to look at this ridiculous level of black crime and violence and pretend it's not there and pretend that you deserve it. Pretend you did something to cause it. That's suicide. We don't need a preamble. We don't need, I don't need to mollify you to tell you that. It's obvious So in the future, when I tell you that the fellas and lovely ladies, including the future people running this country, i.e. the people coming out of Columbia and Barnard, even though to say you're a pre-law undergrad, well, you know, that's like saying, yeah, I'm I'm trying to get in shape. What are you getting in shape for, Colin? Well, I'm I'm trying out for the NBA next year. Uh, Colin, the last time you played basketball, long time ago. Colin, you weren't even that good then. I know, but you know, I'm getting, you know, things have changed. I want to be in the NBA. I'm in my pre-NBA training. Well, that's what it is to say you're a pre-law student at Columbia, okay? Even so, you know, these are the people, Columbia grads and Barnard, they're going to be running the show and this is their mindset. Their mindset is that, you know, a white per, you know, white person dies, who cares? Black people die every day. Black people kill black people every day if we kill a white person once in a while. What's the big goddamn deal? You think I'm making this up? You think I'm making it up when I tell you that they're turning the perpetrators into victims and the victims into the perpetrators? Exhibit 8 trillion right here. Oh yeah, there's going to be a lot more of this in this podcast. Buckle up. Oh, oh, oh. And now you're out of
of size No, please, you can't have my car keys All the fellows just loitering around Blowing up some steam Your phony numbers are killing me And I, I must confess I don't believe In your fairy tales I lose my mind It's s and Stories I lose my mind It's s and Hit me, didn't do one more time Alright, let's let's just let's just get into some you know into some heavy business right away. Let's we've been we don't do enough on black on white murder. We don't do enough on black on cop murder. We don't do enough on black on cop assault, harassment, defiance. Lawless behavior around the cop, putting them in danger. We don't do enough on it. My bad. I wish somebody would do, you know, maybe there is. Maybe there are. I mean, there's a couple of people that websites that do something every day on this. You know, maybe they're cop websites. I don't know. We could do a lot more on it. There's a story of a 24-year-old white chick down in Newport News, Virginia. Chocolate City. Lots of bad business going on down there. We've done a lot of stories down there, that part of the world. Anyway, a couple months ago, she decides she wants to be a cop. She's on the force for seven months. Pulls a car over. Fella, you know, fella decides he doesn't want, not want to cooperate. Instead, he drives away with her somehow hanging on, somehow attached to it. And she dies. As Newport News police investigate the death of one of their own. Last night, 24-year-old officer Katie Thine died after getting seriously hurt during a drug investigation that started with a traffic stop. The scene remained active for over 12 hours into this morning. Now, police say it started just before 7 last night off 16th Street. Investigators say Officer Thine pulled Vernon Green II over, and during that interaction, that Green pressed on the gas and took off. Green was arrested and has been charged with felony homicide, felony evading to elude, and possession of drugs. Yes, Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew spoke with compassion and tears today, calling Officer Fine a true hero. Fine was just 24 years old, seven months into her role on the force. She leaves behind a two-year-old daughter, Reagan. Chief Drew said Thine was very involved in the community, even coaching a boys and girls club basketball team here in the area. He also said she was always smiling, chuckling to himself, even when he didn't know why, he said. And during the presentation, he choked up when those photos of her appeared. Drew said this is what Katie wanted to do, law enforcement, and to do it in this city. He praised the department's response last night and said he feels strength in the police family. All right, let's head down to Louisiana. I mean, 
to a really weird story. It's weird the way they reported it. Kid, I mean, a 17-year-old white kid is sitting in his car. Apparently, that was his life, his car, his Camaro. A 13- and a 14-year-old fella come up to him with a gun, said, we're going to steal your car. He said, no, you're not. They shot and killed him on the spot. And now you have this big TV thing on it where they're kind of memorializing him, but at the same time, they just don't tell us anything about the crime, who did it, who's responsible for it, and that in itself is a crime. Jim and Marcel, within minutes of learning the news, this is the exact parking spot that Carter's classmates and friends came out to. And as you can see, it's been turned into a memorial for their friend who had a love for cars. In a statement, the family says Carter was an organ donor. They say he was always there for someone in need in life and now in death as well. Carter was a student athlete here at Como High School playing on the soccer and football teams. Head football coach Doug Dotson released a statement saying Matt was a tough kid and led by example who will be greatly missed. And so when we talk about all this abuse that cops get from fellas and lovely ladies, this is something we've been talking about for a very long time. But about a year or so ago, a couple of my cops started talking to me about the consequences of that, which is Cops, A, they're not joining some of these departments, and B, the cops who are on these departments are leaving. And I'm thinking of the departments where it doesn't even have to be the, 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 the central organizing function of this dysfunction is not the fact that it's a chocolate city or anything like that. The big factor is you got people on the city council and the mayor who basically believe and who say that cops are an organizing force and they hate black people and they're always doing bad things to black people and we're going to keep investigating the cops over and over and over again. Yeah, I just described Baltimore. I just described Seattle. just described Portland. I always get Seattle and Portland mixed up. One of those council members basically said cops were killers. Cops were murderers. Ditto for Chicago. You know, every two years they have a commission to do a big report, not on the crime in Chicago, not on the fellas ruining Chicago, but on the cops who put their lives on the line, try to catch the fellas. And the people who run Chicago don't like it when they actually catch fellas. I mean, this story is played out all over the country. And so now, and so now all over the country, and, and so these cops are just leaving Lots and lots of correspondents here used to work in a big city department. Now they move to a smaller city department where the majority white people, where people don't, they don't lock their doors. Where if you go to a concert, nobody's getting wanded down. Cop sent me a video a couple weeks ago. He was, he was working security at a big concert, a country western concert. I think there were like 40,000 people in the stadium. So it was a name. No, I'm not going to dox anybody involved. Sent me a video. He said, Kyle, you're not going to believe this. Turns this little body cam on and sends it to me about a minute or two of it. People are walking by. Just about everybody walking by. Everybody's white. Everybody that walks by goes, hey, man, thanks. Thanks for your service. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And about every 10th person comes up and shakes his hand. There were no muggings, no robbings, no shootings. Nobody on the stage 
talking about guns, drugs, money, bitches, and murder. Guns, drugs, money, bitches, and murder. None of that. So cops, they just don't want to put up with the black bullshit of these big cities. They know that their city council and mayor is not going to be behind them. And these guys are out there every day. They're not just risking their lives. They're risking their careers. They've got to make about a million of these decisions every minute, right? It's like, hey, do I tackle that guy? Hey, does he look suspicious? Hey, do I stop him? Hey, if I, you know, if I don't or if I don't, you know, get him out of the car, am I just going to let him go away and maybe, you know, stick a gun in somebody's face? And, these are, and if you make one of those decisions wrong, all of a sudden you're, you know, you're in front of a police inquiry board staffed by the mayor and council for, put there for one reason to hang you and your colleagues out to dry for their political benefit. So the cops are getting bullshit. I'm not going to do that. So we've been talking about that for at least a year. So now we got somebody from the Sinclair Broadcasting Company. They're, they own a lot of local stations, so I guess they're kind of a network. But there's one thing in here that really, 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 really got me annoyed. I bet you, I bet you, I bet you it's going to jump right out at you, too. In Baltimore, a place referred to as the most murderous big city in the nation, there is a vacancy rate of police patrol positions of about 26%, part of a trend occurring at police departments nationwide. 31 years ago when I applied to be a police officer, there was a line of 400 of us to get into the testing. That's not the norm now. Captain Steve Rao with the Falls Church Police Department in Virginia says the shortage here has meant those who do work often have to pick up the slack for the holes in the schedule. If all of a sudden we're telling people, well, not only do you have to work and you can't take vacation, but you also have to work tomorrow. And we know it was your day off, but it takes a toll on the body. He says it also takes a toll on the mind, a major concern in cities like San Jose, Newark, and Charlotte, where the drop in officers per 10,000 residents has dropped more than 30% in the last two decades. Other challenges for recruiting new officers? Videos like these of police abusing their power, sometimes selectively edited, sometimes accurate, almost always going viral. If they feel that they you know, could be indicted for doing their jobs, even if you know, their heart's in the right place, they're not going to work here. These are all factors in what the Police Executive Research Forum calls a workforce crisis. Not only the challenge of recruiting, but also of retaining, with more officers leaving their departments and the profession long before retirement age. The lack of recruits has meant a financial cost as well. In Portland, Oregon, overtime nearly doubled between 2013 and 2018. Much of that due to a staffing shortage. We're talking 120 sworn people, which is... Um, for reference, that would staff an entire precinct. As far as the impact of the police shortage, well, that varies city to city, with some experiencing a spike in crime, others simply taking longer to complete investigations. The one trend we saw throughout, though, is officers working longer hours to do the job. Videos like these, says our prim, prim and proper and rosy-skinned, red-haired reporter videos like these of police abuse oh that's why cops are leaving these big departments because they are abusers yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah uh-huh no they're leaving because the cops are abused you fool how did you ever get the causality mixed up 
And why didn't you run any of the videos just like the one we just ran about the cop getting killed? How many of them are there? How about the cops being attacked every day? Good Lord, where do we get these people? Where do we get these people and how do they constantly set the bar lower and lower and lower for the level of ignorance and stupidity that we've heretofore thought was unachievable. Again, I'm not going to come in here and say, I told you so, damn, we've been talking about this. No, it's my cops telling me, I'm telling you. So they told you so. Yeah, if you're in Portland, Seattle, LA, Chicago, Baltimore, yeah, if you see a moving van, there's probably a cop in that van. They don't want anything to do with these places that really hate them. I, I don't know how I don't know how I don't know any other way we could say it. All right, let's try saying it this way. We'll go to Oakland and try saying it. So just guys, before we go to Oakland, remember just a couple days ago in Chicago, they had 500 people in a meeting. People lived in the Magnificent Mile. These are the people that live in the clouds in these magnificent condos way up there, okay? You've got a lot of money when you live there. I respect people with money. I admire people with money. I don't have any problem with people with money. But here's what the cops had a problem with because the cops know who lives at them in these big condo towers. The cops know that every big liberal in Chicago lives in those towers and they are the ones enabling the crime and violence from them. That right along with the mayor, it's a tri, it's a trifecta in Chicago. The mayor, the police chief, and the district attorney, all down with the cause, all know that black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism, and all know we're not going to arrest our way out of this mess. And so, after the chickens come home to roost, the people in Chicago have a big meeting, going, "Hey." Why is there so much crime in our streets? Why are you unable to do something about it? Hey, we're rich people. We pay a lot of taxes. We expect better service. No, the cops were saying, no, you're getting what you asked for. You don't want us to criminalize the kids. You don't want us to put them on a you know, cradle to prison pipeline. This is what you asked for. Oh, yeah, cops were unanimous on this. You ought to check that story out over at Second City Cop. Lots and lots of comments about who's up there. Lots of comments about these meetings. Lots of comments about how the, you know, the people who were at the meetings are the ones responsible for the necessity of the meeting in the first place. Now we go out to Oakland. Same thing. So the people in Oakland, people here were talking about Oakland. There's two parts of Oakland. There's the city part and you go to Oakland Hills. People have a little bit more money up there. You get a lot more house there than you do in San Francisco. But even so, to live in Oakland, to be a white person living in Oakland, you are down with the cause and you fully expect the cause to be down with you. I mean, that's who you elect to your city councils. So when you see all the crazy stuff happening on BART from people coming from Oakland and going to San Francisco, you just shrug your shoulders. And you know what you say? You say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. I got by another day not being the victim here in Oakland. They're the victims over there in San Francisco. So too bad for them. Fine by me. That's how white people live in Oakland. They know they're in a dark and dirty and dangerous chocolate city. They know they're living in a place with a tradition of people proud of 
the tradition of Oakland, being not friendly to white people, unfriendly to white people, hostile to white people. And by white people, I mean our Asian brothers as well. So there on Oakland, we, we, uh, we played this video. We played this video over at minds.com slash Colin Flaherty. It got a lot of reaction. It showed a fella chasing a white woman up to her doorstep, ringed right in front of the ring doorbell. There he is wailing on her, you know, knocking her shoe off. It turns out, I didn't see anybody see, I didn't see anybody say this, but if you look at that video carefully, there were two of them. One was in the street. He picked something up, and as soon as he picked something up, which I took to be a purse, he said he made some kind of motion or signal to the fellow wailing on the white chick, and they ran off into the night. So this got everybody in a tizzy in Oakland, and about you know how like a lot of people at this crime meeting, and all the Oakland liberals turned out to wonder how we could have so much crime in our city, and not one person stood up and said. Uh, yeah, well, we're the ones who've been lobbying for the criminals for the last 30 to 40 years. We're the ones who were saying we shouldn't put black people in prison. We're the ones saying black people are victims of white racism. We're the ones saying the whole damn thing, except we never thought it would affect anybody we knew. We thought it would affect somebody else. These are people who live in Oakland. Listen, I know we don't blame, try not to blame the victims around here. But please, if you're going to be the ones who create this level of chaos, mayhem, and dysfunction, if you're going to enable our black brothers and sisters to create this violence and lawlessness, and you're going to be the first one in front out there explaining it away, excusing it, so we don't have to really worry about it, please don't go to a meeting and try to convince the rest of us. Now you need some help. If you don't want to help yourself, what are we supposed to do? An armed robbery caught on camera. The doorbell video shared by neighbors that is striking a nerve in Oakland tonight. The 11 o'clock news on KTVU Fox 2 starts now. A community meeting packed with neighbors tonight worried that street crime is surging. Hello again, everyone. I'm Julie Hayner. And I'm Frank Somerville. People in Oakland say the crimes are becoming more violent, and their concern is underscored by a frightening new video. We have live coverage tonight from KTVU's Deborah Villone, who was at tonight's community meeting. Deborah. About 60 people here tonight, more than usually come to these monthly crime updates, but that armed robbery on video really has people rattled. A woman's terror as a man holding a gun leaps out of nowhere and robs her at her front door just after midnight Monday. Captured by the camera on her doorbell in a complex off Keller Avenue. It terrified my wife to see that, and um, and she's very afraid. People who packed this community meeting say it could have been any of them. Getting people just coming out of their car after work. Describing how car break-ins and burglaries have escalated to holdups in broad daylight. Many, like this one on Fairfax Avenue, captured on surveillance video. They're very much the same group of people. OPD says gang members steal to support their lifestyles. And that, ironically, inroads made suppressing robbery in the flatlands is shifting it elsewhere. That might have pushed it, like just kind of relocated it. And so we do have to get our hands back on where our trends are happening. But residents complain when they call, police don't come. 
at home and someone tried to get in my house. He called, we called, but nobody came out. We had handprints on the window. And when suspects are caught, they don't stay caught. 15, 16, 17 break-ins and they're still walking around. What's up with that? Literally taken aback when I saw the video. The councilman for the area says he understands crime statistics don't tell the whole story because an incident like this is personal. If I was never a victim of crime and tomorrow I am, my statistics went from zero to 100 percent. This video first appeared on the neighborhood app Nextdoor, where commenters talk of Oakland becoming unlivable. I don't believe Oakland's unlivable, that's, but that's the, the initial feeling, the, the emotion that people are feeling is, come on, help us out. I mean, they just don't have any Republicans or conservatives in Oakland. They don't have anybody standing up and saying, yeah, if you, can, if you bonk somebody over the head, you're going to jail. No, the best they can do is, uh, please don't bonk anybody over the head because that's not really a nice thing to do. And we're really trying to, you know, be, we're kind of cool here in Oakland. It's a cool place. So why don't you kind of join in our coolness? Nobody bought, nobody fellas don't buy that. They laugh at that. They laugh at these meetings. Oh, please. I bet all these white people in a room begging for mercy, begging for help. Not one person standing up and going, yeah, I think I'm going to do something to protect myself. I don't know what it is. And if I figure it out in California, I'm sure not going to tell you, but I am going to protect myself, at least in my house. Not one person said that. I remember I went to a meeting. Remember, I, I, these meetings are my hobby. I went to a meeting at a church, black church, because a white minister had just been bunked on the head, knocked out, knockout game, bunch of fellas. So we go to the meeting in this church. It was it was just the black people they just bought it. They just changed it from a white church to a, like one of these African Methodist churches. So the white people stood up. They're gonna have a community meeting on this minister getting bunked over the head and how we gotta do something to change it. The very first thing they said at the beginning of the meeting is listen, we don't want there's one thing we're gonna put off limits here. We're not gonna have any talk about guns or anything like that because that's not what this meeting is for. So this meeting is basically just to put the white flag up and surrender. And on the flag, it'll say, please don't hurt me too badly. I'm down with the cause. I'll give you whatever I have. You know, if you, you know, it, when a wolf, if you have a bunch of sheep in a pen and a wolf gets into that pen, what does the wolf do? We know wolf have a taste for lamb and mutton and all that stuff. What does the wolf do when he's in the pen? The wolf will kill all the sheep before he begins to eat even one. That's his thing. That's his lifestyle. It's what he enjoys doing. So for all these white liberals in Oakland to put their hands up and say, hey man, we'll give you whatever you want. Don't hurt us. Well, what they want is to destroy you, humiliate you, take your stuff at the most basic level, take away everything you think is important and good for you. They're going to take that away from you. That's what they do. That's their preferred lifestyle. Thus, the laughing, laughing, laughing. All right, let's run through a few more of these stories, lifestyle stories.
where the fellas are just walking down the street, they're beating the piss out of somebody, robbing somebody. It's because that's what they're into. A few months ago on the streets of San Francisco, three fellas walking down the street. They saw some, I mean, this was in Chinatown. They saw some dude wearing a Rolex in Chinatown, middle of the day, big crowd around. Fellas start wailing on these two Chinese people, grab the Rolex, run, laughing, laughing, laughing. Well, they just caught the second one. Breaking news is another arrest has been made in connection with a heinous attack in San Francisco's Chinatown. ABC 7 News reporter Vic Lee tweeted the development just moments ago. That attack happened in July of last year in the middle of the intersection of Stockton and Pacific Streets. Video of the beating and the robbery of Walter Wong just stunned Chinatown residents. His friend was also attacked. In October, 19-year-old Deshaun Pearson was taken into custody in connection with that beating. One suspect is still at large. Let's go down to Ocala, Florida. Man, these there's there's an old dude. Here's somebody out in his driveway. Here's somebody outside. He goes out. He thinks it's one thing. It's something else. And we do these stories probably once a week now. A white person goes out to see what's up with this car. He thinks he can just go out and talk to the fellas nicely about what they're doing in his car. That's what this guy thought he was going to do. And as a result, his face is now broken it happened in a quiet historic section of ocala sunday night a little after nine o'clock the victim was expecting company so when he heard car doors close in his driveway he went outside to welcome them astonished to find complete strangers in one of his cars went out to greet his family member and uh, found three people inside of his vehicle they're rummaging through it the 67 year old asked the teens what they were doing at first they took off but almost as quickly made an about face. Uh, they attacked him, uh, they broke his uh, eye socket, they broke his jaw, uh, caused a laceration, laceration to his scalp, and uh, rifled through his pockets in an attempt to steal property from him during the robbery. In the report, the victim's wife said she yelled out, I'm calling the police. And the victim is quoted in the report, that the suspects kicked him also. He suffered multiple fractures to his face and a laceration to his scalp. He was kept to the hospital for a day or two. 19-year-old Ezell Kiner was found blocks away on the roof of this building. Officers say canines tracked him there. In the report, Kiner denied being involved, but the report says a set of the victim's keys were found where Kiner was taken into custody. He's charged with battering someone over 65, robbery and burglary. And we move on over to Flatbush. I think that's in, is that in the Bronx or Brooklyn? I think it's in Brooklyn. Asian restaurant. Bunch of, a bunch of fellas and lovely ladies go in. They just start destroying the place. It's on video, but they give you a little play-by-play -play here. Nobody knows why. Okay, here's why. They like it. A wild brawl at a restaurant in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Check this out. You'd see fists going flying inside Mr. King Asian Fusion restaurant last month. Three people started hitting, kicking, and punching employees. At one point, a broom was used in the attack. One suspect raided a fridge, hurling cans of soda and glass bottles at a worker behind the counter. One employee suffered a cut to the face. Police are looking for the attackers. Why don't we go over to this headline? Over in Italy, U.S. troops in Vicenza investigated after attack as army reviews off-limits policies. So here's the story. Had a bunch of fellas roaming up and down the streets of Vicenza. Apparently, there's an army base nearby. A couple of Italian people are talking. The fellas come up and beat the piss out of them really badly. 
Well, it turns out they've been doing that all day long. When they caught him on video, they arrested him. They played the name card. Oh, yeah. We beat the piss out of those Italian people. Yeah, the people who said they never saw us before because we thought they were calling us names. And we used this magical African-American mind-reading ability that also translates thoughts. And that's why we went on a crime spree, a knockout game spree, terrorizing the town of Vicenza. Now you got all these bars that used to be hangouts for American military. And American military are no longer welcome there. You know, in places like Korea where they have army bases, they're a little more explicit over there. They say, no, black people are not allowed in these bars. Black soldiers are not allowed here because you are occasions of crime and violence and mayhem and chaos. And we don't want anything to do with you. That's what they say near the army bases. Why is that? Are Italians picking on black American soldiers for no reason whatsoever? All right, let's get to some serious business now. Let's get to some real serious business. Let's get to some real serious business of white people picking on black people for no reason whatsoever, typical of what white people have been doing for four billion years, four billion generations. And finally, down there in, I forget where this is, this might be in Texas. Finally, in this town in Texas, this school in Texas, it all came to a boil, a festering fetid, rotten boil of white racism. Now it's exploding. Yeah, check out this injustice. People packed a Barbers Hill school board meeting tonight, fired up over the dress code. Yeah, it's a dress code some say is outdated and racially insensitive, especially when it pertains to one student who wears dreadlocks. Marcelino Benito in Mount Bellevue with both sides tonight. Guys, Barbers Hill ISD hasn't had a school board meeting in its history with more than two speakers. Tonight, 16 people spoke up against a hair policy that many say is racially charged. I get it. You don't understand locks because ain't none of y'all black. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a district that touts its excellence found itself embroiled in controversy about race, discrimination, and dreadlocks. This is a black and white issue. The dress code is designed by white people for white people that is damaging to black bodies. Activists stood beside DeAndre Arnold and his family as they addressed the Barbers Hill ISD school board. DeAndre has been suspended and won't be able to walk at his graduation in three months unless he cuts his dreadlocks. DeAndre should not have to be, he should not have to go through this. This family should not have to go through this, but I expect it from a school board that has zero diversity. The district says this isn't about dreadlocks or race. There is no dress policy, uh, dress code policy that prohibits uh, any cornrow or any other method of the wearing of the hair. Our policy limits uh, the length. Uh, it's been that way for 30 years. A handful of speakers agreed with the district and pleaded with them not to make an exception with the rules, but the majority didn't buy the district's explanation. We're here about DeAndre, but it's bigger than DeAndre. It's about all the other DeAndre's that possibly can come through Barbara's Hill. DeAndre's family is hoping his hair doesn't derail a good student's future, and they vow to fight this until the end. They have 48 hours to come up with a resolution. If not, we're going to take this to federal court. Don't worry, Deshaun or DeAndre. Okay, I forgot his name, okay? Don't worry. Help is on the way. There are three states now 
where you may not mess with a black person's hair for any reason whatsoever. New Jersey's the third. Uh, California and New York are the other two. It's a thing. What's the headline on this story out of New Jersey? New Jersey becomes the third state to pass a law prohibiting racial discrimination on the race basis of hair. You know, the last time, it was one of the first times I heard about it. It was just a couple months ago. Remember that story down in Northern Virginia? Little girl with braids, 10-year-old, 11-year-old. She goes home one year, her grandmother, this girl lived with her grandparents, of course. Went to a very exclusive private school. Don't know if it was scholarship or not. Anyway, so her, her this little girl's hair was the object of like her grandmother's care. I mean, a very ornate stuff. Every day, the grandmother was combing it and picking it and doing whatever the hell people do to maintain a hairstyle like that with lots and lots and lots of braids and dreads in it. So one day, the girl comes home from school. The grandmother sees that like a quarter of an inch of one of the braids had been cut off. Quarter of an inch. You remember this story, right? And the little girl goes, it's, I, it's, looking back on it, it's hard to believe like how it happened, how it played out. The little girl goes, yeah, a bunch of white people did it. White, white people at my school. And besides, they've been making fun of me and stealing my lunch money and beating me up for a long time. Yeah, and then they just cut my hair the other day. So it turns out that on Channel 9 in D.C., one of the black reporters there was a friend of this family. It turns out she had a hair care business. You know, like one of these side side gigs. And they come to your hair, come to your house and go, hey, would you like to buy some, uh, you know, Amway? You know, except the black version? Sure. So this chick, this anchor, this reporter had one of these businesses. She knows the family. She goes on the air you know, with a five alarm alert, white racism at this expensive school where Mike Pence's, the vice president's wife teaches, they're attacking the black girl and God dang it, we're going to stay on top of it. And God dang it, this wouldn't have happened if we had that law. The law has a name where you protect the rights of black people to wear their hair any length, any style they darn well feel like because white people aren't black people so we don't understand their thing and we can't mess with them for any reason whatsoever because we already are messing with them for every reason whatsoever. So anyway, uh, you know, so they're into like seven minutes of this story. And as you know, seven minutes on a TV story, that's not just War and Peace. That's War and Peace and Anya Karenia put together and read in one sitting. So the other guy who's on who's on the the desk with her, who's on the story with her, he kind of like thanked her for bringing that issue of this what we just heard here in New Jersey. How we're going to outlaw it has a buzzword. I forget what the buzzword is. We're going to outlaw racial discrimination against hair. And he went into like a two minute rant on it, like how you know blah 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 black hair blah 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 white people blah 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 white people suck black hair good done. Anyway, remember, it turned out to be a hoax, right? Little girl cut her own hair. Bam! And I never heard what that news... I never heard what that news station did. I checked in a couple times. Didn't spend a lot of time there, but I don't remember if the... I don't think the reporter ever came back out and said, hey, they got me hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, because of my own personal belief, my own preconceptions going into a story, 
I took the word of a 10-year-old girl and we stopped the world for two days. Oh yeah, the world stopped for two or three days, maybe more because it took a couple weeks for everybody to figure out what happened because there were no kids bullying her. There were no kids stealing her lunch money. There were no kids stealing her lunch. None of that happened. But for a week or two, everybody thought it had happened until they, they finally figured it out. It's like the whole saying from Sherlock Holmes, right? Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever is left, however improbable, is the solution. So they just went and talked to everybody out there. And if there had been any argy-bargy, they would have figured it out. They went and confronted the girl and her parents. And the girl said, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it kind of made it all up. And the, the grandmom said, yeah, we're sorry. You made it all up. But we still don't like racism. You know, this one, this next story out of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, across the river from Philadelphia, not the world's biggest story. Just a story of a little kid. Ten fellas come along, 15 fellas come along. They try to beat him up and steal his bike. He fought for it. They didn't get his bike. But what they did do was terrorize him all the time, laughing, laughing, laughing. And we're talking about teens terrorizing other teens. And obviously there is nothing out there that's worth risking your life. However, this child said that he worked hard over the summer. He saved up all of his own money for this bike. He wasn't letting go of it easily. This bike means a lot to me. I buy new parts for it all the time. It's like my Mercedes. 13-year-old Christian Lopez of Cherry Hill says he worked all so summer to save up for this oh, SE-style bike. These are ODI grips, so they're like really grippy. And these are donuts. And now it cost him two black eyes. Yeah, I was just holding on to my bike while they were punching me. Uh, Lopez says he's a little bruised, um, but really bothered that a group of teens wearing red bandanas over their faces jumped him on Monday afternoon in this quiet Cherry Hill neighborhood off of Route 38. They were yelling, screaming like, give me your bike. There was a girl there. And she recorded it and then ran. The Cherry Hill Police Department says it's investigating the case. I just can't believe that it happened. Christian's mom finds it unsettling. Children terrorizing other children in broad daylight. You let your children go out and play and you're thinking that you're in a good area and something like that probably wouldn't happen here. And it did. Had you ever seen them before? No, I've never seen them in this neighborhood before. Christian and his mom are sharing their story as a wake-up call to people who live nearby. They're hoping someone might have surveillance footage of these teens strutting through the area of Edward and Helena Avenues looking for trouble. Had the guy not said they had, the, had that, the, 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 the victim not said they were laughing at him, I'm not sure that would have made the cut. But they were having fun. Picking on that, the kid's a little bit on the chubby side. Didn't look like he was the toughest kid on the block. But he was a target. Anyway, let's go out to, we, you know, we probably do more stuff on BART than we should, but sometimes it's just such an easy target. I mean, the first story we did on BART was some genius at BART said, man, we're getting a lot of complaints about bad business on our trains. Let's give people an app so they can report uh, something bad when it happens. That way we can, you know, be, have the cops ready at the next station. This is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Huge train system, huge area. 
do the app. The newspaper gets a hold of it a year later. They go, hey, 80% of the complaints involve black people, which of course was proof positive they had to get rid of the app because that was racism. The rioters were guilty of racism because 80% of the complaints involve black people. Flash forward to my absolute favorite video of all time, even more favorite than the two True to Roof videos we did the other day. It's the board member of BART. She's sitting there on one of these Sunday morning shows that no one's ever heard of. And they're talking about a recent episode where like 50 black people went onto a train at a BART station, I think in Oakland, beat the piss out of the six people on there and ran away. Well, you know, I knew within 12 hours about it. I knew who did it. I knew what they looked like. It was a bunch of fellas. But listen, when there's, you know, when there's 50 people do something and they're beating the crap out of six people and all of a sudden all these cops show up, I mean, it's a, it's a geometric thing. It just keeps spreading who was involved. And the more they try to pretend it, somebody else or it was involved than who really was involved, like, like there might have been a chance it was white kids. That's to the extent this thing spreads. So they're... There they are, Sunday morning, talking about this show. Bart and the, so the I don't know if the moderator knew what she was asking. I suspect she did. She goes, "Hey, what's up with that uh, you know thing? Why can't we get the video of that episode of violence, mob violence again on the Bart riders? Because a lot of people are unsafe riding Bart." The board member goes, "Well, I asked the vice president of Bart the same thing." Then she started reading a letter saying the reason they didn't release the videos, which they have, is because too many white people were being too mean to their the general manager in the voicemail. She was shocked. And two, it would be embarrassing to black people to release the video, and it would create negative racial stereotypes if they released all the videos of all the crime. And she actually said that. Anyway, so every once in a while, somebody... Gets in an idea like, man, we got to go back to Bart and do a story. Do people really know how bad the violence, mayhem, and chaos is on Bart? Especially now in the last five years, the California and San Francisco Bay Area has turned into one big cesspool, one big campground for homeless people. You get the idea. So let's just do a couple minutes on Bart. And whenever, here's the, here's the, when you're what, when you listen to this clip from this something from a television show, the news story, you're going to hear a lot of stories about, well, this happened, that happened. Every single clip they show of people attacking police, attacking other people, acting in a dysfunctional manner, every single person on these clips is a fella. Welcome aboard. This is Bay Area Rapid Transit, affectionately and sometimes infamously known as BART. It's pretty much a lifeline for commuters across the San Francisco Bay Area. 723 trains, 122 miles of track, 48 stations, and more than 420,000 rides each day. But all that can sometimes add up to a pretty crazy ride. Female was attacked with a hammer and she's bleeding from the head at this point. I'm even wearing my own pepper spray. I don't see any police presence on BART. You see people using the restroom? Yeah, yeah. I would say anything goes, like a wild west lawless place. People like, get verbally abusive on Bart. The real, the real, I, I didn't have the baby. 
naked. <laughs> you know, it's awful walking by all the homeless people. I've seen people, you know, shooting up on bars. Suspects smoking or doing heroin. getting into physical fights. Patrons are reporting an active fight in train car 1699. As I was running out of the BART parking lot, I heard a blood curdling scream. He just like punched her in the face, right across the face. She was reading a book, didn't see it coming. How are people supposed to feel safe when this is what they're seeing on BART? Unfortunately, we can't have our officers on every train in every station. We've heard complaints from riders who feel like BART, frankly, hasn't been that transparent. Oh, I would disagree with that. I think BART is very transparent. For months, we reviewed tens of thousands of crime reports. Spent days and nights recording on the train and spoke with BART's top leaders to find out how a world-class transportation system went from this to this. So hold on, because there's no telling where this story will take us. I left the So at some point, you know, I just don't know how much of this stuff it's going to take before like a whole bunch of people just put their hands up in the air and they go, okay, Colin, Colin, we get it. The fellas are out of control, dysfunctional, chaotic, violent on epic levels. We get it. You convinced us. I don't think that day is going to be today or tomorrow. I just saw the headline on this story out of The Economist. Now, The Economist, it used to present itself as a little bit of a lefty, a little bit of a liberal thing. But over the last 10 years, it's gone full lefty, full partisan, full Democrat. It's a magazine out of England, purports to be very academic, purports to be very, you know, for the intelligent and the elite. Lots of dense stories in there. Anyway, here's the headline. Smoking gun evidence emerges for racial bias 
in American courts. So this just came out. The Economist is waving a flag around saying, hey, everybody, we finally found the 100% proof that black people are victims of racial discrimination in the American court system. And here's the subhead. Black defendants are suspiciously likely to be charged with carrying precise amounts of crack. So anyway, you read the story and the first two paragraphs, they just lay it all out for you. It's like, yeah, black people are in jail more, black people are arrested more, and if you think that's because they commit more crime, then you really suck. So let's get to the bottom of this. You know, the people in Delaware did the same thing. There was a guy named Leo Stein. He was, I think he was, he might still be the Supreme Court judge, head of the Supreme Court. So they were going through this about two years ago, and they finally said, listen, why don't we just get some of these pointy-headed Ivy League dudes up the street in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. We'll get them to do a story. Is there a disparity in sentencing between white people and black people who commit the same crime of the same record? I mean, that's how you get sentenced, right? It's not just the fact that you bonked somebody over the head, but if you bonked somebody over the head five times before, and you made it a living, and I bonked somebody over the head five times, and one time in a marginal case that might have been self-defense, these are not equal cases. So they got the pointy-headed profs down there, and that's what they came back and said after about six months. This study landed with a thud followed by crickets because everybody wanted the facts. The facts are that black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere. That explains everything. That's what they wanted. That's what they paid for. That's not what they got. The professors came back and said, yeah, we studied it. And when you compare apples to apples... Matter of fact, white people are actually being sentenced a little bit more for the same crime with the same record than black people. See, that's the key thing. That's the key pivot in economics or any of these studies. You have to compare the same people with the same characteristics. So if you say a woman's only making like 72 cents for every dollar a man makes, No, what you really have to say is, well, how much does a woman make with the same kind of job, same experience, same education, same time in the workforce, same everything, except the only thing that's different is that she's a woman, he's a man, or or somehow she's a member of one of the 27 genders and he's a man. Let's check the disparity on that. And when you line up everything else like that, all of a sudden, the disparity not only disappears, sometimes the disparity goes in favors of surprising groups like black women. Oh, yeah. There are lots of places where black women make more than white women. College graduates. Yeah, if you're a black chick with a nice college degree. Oh, yeah. You are a valuable and sought-after commodity. So the economist doesn't want to hear any of this. All they want to do is talk about... Trayvon Martin, St. Michael Brown of Ferguson, and how black people are relentless victims of white racism, especially in the criminal justice system. (laughs) And they're just relentless. It's like, you know, it's like you get like, it's almost like Bart, right? It's like, listen, uh, we're getting all these reports over the years. They all point to the same thing, that there's bad business on Bart and the fellas are responsible. Well, Colin, that's cherry-picking. No, 
we no, it's like happening all the time. That's what everybody says. Everybody who's been directly, I mean, there's nobody saying that white people are rampaging through BART, beating the piss out of people. Nobody's saying that Asian people are doing it. No, the white and Asian people and women are victims. The fellas are the perps. Colin, that's cherry picking. Have you done a uh, 27-year longitudinal study with controlling for all the variables? Uh, no, I haven't. Well, I didn't think so, Colin. So please get back to me in 27 years. In the meantime, I promise you I will do everything I can to continue to ignore, and deny, condone, excuse, encourage, and even lie about this level of black violence because as a white academic, that is what I am required to do. Oh, man. You know what? I thought I was required to listen to this next clip. I first saw it. Somebody sent it to me. A good, you know, good source. Told me what was in it. NPR. Something called Code Switch. They've talked about me on Code Switch several times. Code Switch. The name of the show, it's Code Switch's their premises, listen, the whole world, the world in America is all organized along the lines of white normalcy. So we're experiencing everything in our lives through this lens of white normalcy. Well, why does it have to be that way? Why can't we switch the code? Why can't we experience the world through the lens of the fellas? So when we see a, you know, an epic scale of black dysfunction and violence, the fact that we notice it tells people at Code Switch that we are looking through the world white lenses and not black lenses. Because if you look through the world of black, through the black people, then they, they would say, well, Colin, we don't have any expectation. We, the fellas, that is. We don't have any expectation of privacy or safety or jobs or any of this stuff. So why should anybody else? That's just you normalizing your white experience. Colin, that's your white privilege. And that's not really how we roll over here at NPR. Anyway, so that's Code Switch. I try not to, that's one show I try not to listen to, but somebody said, you gotta listen to it, Colin. Anyway, I made a recording of it. The recording came out a little messed up. I, I'm just telling you, I, this is so obnoxious and so revolting. I can't even listen to that much more of it to record it again. But here's like a three or four minute segment, just a little sketchy. And the topic is black and white friendships. So the host is black. A guy, the host guy is black. He has to tell us he's black or else we wouldn't know. And the woman, she is not white because she makes a big deal about the fact that she's a person of color. She even challenges us during the show like, oh, what do you think I am? So she's Persian slash Iranian and Puerto Rican. You know, so in that world, the more boxes you check off, the higher you go up the ladder of moral superiority. So they're both up there. And so they're talking about black and white friendships. And at the beginning, they spend good, most of the show, it goes this kind of weave throughout the show, that these two people who work together also hang out together. I think with, I got the impression there was at least one significant other floating around. They hang out together off the show. And so whatever we're about to say about white people not refusing to hang out with black people and white people are bad people because they don't have more black friends. It doesn't apply to us because we got the moral superiority thing going and we are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars and whatever or not, whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding and we're better than you because we have friends who are people of color. Yeah, we like our pox. 
And so in about 20 minutes in, they, they read a letter from an Asian girl. Asian girl did the worst possible thing. Her parents did the worst possible thing they could have done to her in high school. They lived in Minnesota. And instead of sending that girl to an inner city school in Minnesota, they sent her to the suburban school near where they lived. And she went to school with a bunch of white people. And they were just a bunch of boring, vanilla people. And now she's all pissed off that she doesn't know more people of color. And she's actually asking these hosts in a question period through a letter. She goes, well, should I ditch all my white friends and just go make friends with people of color? That's the world we're living in. These are supposed to be the brainiacs. They're the ones running the show. And the show means this. Anything white people do sucks. Anything the pox do is just fine. Oh, yeah. Just listen to this because there's a couple of other crazy things that came back. Jean. Shireen. Code switch. Okay, so we're talking about friendship on this episode. And Shireen, Mm -hmm. you started out this whole episode data from the Yale sociologist Grace Cal. That's right. She's the quantitative researcher who found that Asian Americans are more likely than Black and white Americans to have friends outside their race. They're also more likely to go to predominantly white schools and live in predominantly white neighborhoods. So if they're going to have friends, they kind of have to be interracial. What a coincidence. That is the exact situation that our next letter writer, Amy, found herself in. I mean, I think I'm at a place right now where I think I'm a lot more comfortable in a room full of white people than in a room full of Asian people. And like, what does that make me? Okay, so Amy is a junior at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. She's the daughter of Chinese immigrants, and she was raised in a really, really white suburb. And that meant that I grew up, unfortunately, with very few friends of color, probably due to internalized racism, but also because there were very few people of color in my town and my school district in general. Mm, Can we talk a little bit more about probably due to internalized racism? Ooh, listen, listen, listen. So Amy told us that when she was really young, she rejected her mom's Chinese cooking like she actively avoided eating it. She was like, yo, I don't want to eat this. Her mom made Chinese food for everybody else and I'm doing air quotes, American food for Amy. Wow, that was really nice of her mom. My mom would never I know. (laughs) You're going to eat what I'm cooking. (laughs) Or you're going to (laughs) starve. And the high school stuff was really interesting, too, because uh, Amy told us that she thought her high school was overwhelmingly white. But with some distance a couple years out, she realized that it might not have been as white as she remembered. Mm. So her younger sister went to the same high school and managed to make a bunch of friends of color. Mm. So Amy just kind of actively avoided and blotted out the people of color who were around her. The few Asian friends I did have at the time were really hard friendships due to a lot of reasons that did not have to do with race. Amy also told us that she did not fit in with the other Asian girls in her high school because she was, in her words, loud and bad at math. Not the words I would use. Yeah, that, yeah. But as we were talking about before, white friend circles are policed to maintain their whiteness. And so Amy's friend circles, which are mostly white, have been full of people, she said, who tormented her. Uh, they would make fun of my parents' accents. They would call me Ling Ling. I remember my senior year of high school, I was officially labeled the, the token Asian friend by my friend group. And looking back, most of the bullying came from girls who were my friends, who were a part of my friend group, and who I remained friends with until we graduated high school. 
That makes me mad. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, it should. <laughs> it's, it's my, oh. So now, Amy's in college. She's wrestling with all these big questions about her identity, which is what folks do in college. Mm-hmm. But her social universe, it looks kind of the same. Hmm. She kept pointing out that her friends are her ride or dies, but they are oh. just not making any space for her in oh. conversations oh. about race. Uh, I have white friends who oh. patronize me and talk over me when it comes to discussing politics. Okay, once again, that was probably could have been a slightly better audio quality. Okay, so the other part of the show, they bring in somebody who was made... Oh, probably had a shift woman had to make over a million dollars on this book because this book is the kind that's sold in universities to you know to teachers, kids read it in classrooms. And the title of the book is something like Why Do the Black Children Eat by Them Eat Together in the Cafeteria? And so the host and the hostess of this program knew the answer right away. If black kids are segregating themselves over in the corner, it's only for one reason. They're protecting themselves from all the crazy stuff white people are constantly inflicting on them in school. Yeah, it's one thing after another. Now, I'm sorry, as the host of this podcast and my video channel and my books and everything like that, I apologize because I've never really seen that video. The videos I see are the opposite. I just see black people, just like we posted one two days ago. I mean, this was, a, this was in a school that's 4% black. Black person comes up behind a white guy in a class. They got white guys sitting there doing his homework. Black guy just comes up, wails away on him from behind. That's the only kind of videos I've seen. I've never seen the opposite. And so it must be me because these people at Code Switch, these are big time shows. They're expensively produced. If you listen to the credits, you'll see there's a lot of people working on these shows. A lot of researchers, a lot of producers, a lot of people doing grabbing coffee, a lot of people doing this and that and everything. And so they wouldn't be making this up, would they? They've got to have, they just, it must just have been an oversight. Okay, so they describe it that the black, white people are always messing with black people in schools. That's why the black kids eat together. But then, then, then they got to my favorite part where they go, And the only reason the white kids sit by themselves or they don't have more people of color in their group is because what white people do all the time is they police their whiteness. They protect their whiteness. That's a bad thing. So the black kids are doing one thing, self-segregating, and that's good. That's necessary. That's important. White kids do the same thing, and it's the worst possible thing in the world because that's basically like half of a step away from the plantation where the white people are policing the whiteness. Yeah, all that's missing is Simon Legree, big old hat, and some dude with a whip. And any black person that comes up, sits down, and tries to eat with white people, he gets whipped. Any white people who invites a black person into that white lunchroom whipped. This is the sickness we see in the national media day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. It's relentless. Non-questioning. Nobody ever questions them. Nobody ever challenges them. 
Now we got an Asian chick going, oh my God, you know, white people really suck. Why don't I hang out with black people? Because everybody knows black people and Asians get along really well. There's no video. Good old Colin, a bad man Colin, he doesn't have any videos of black on Asian violence. That's never happened, has it? Yeah, well, we just wearing one here. I didn't even run the video a couple days ago. A, year, a couple days ago, there was a story about an 84-year-old woman who had the Asian woman in San Francisco walking around her town with her little dog. A fella came up, beat the crap out of her so much that when, they, that when the daughter, when the niece went out looking for her, saw something in the park lying in a puddle of mud, did not even recognize it as a human being, let alone her grandmother. Oh, yeah, what about the headlines in San Francisco? San Francisco's dirty secret, black on Asian violence. Yeah, lots of community meetings about that with the Asians in Sacramento. Love those meetings. The first one starts out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Asian people. They look determined. They look earnest. They go into that meeting. They know the rules. The rules are this. We come to America. We play by the rules. We pay our taxes. We try to fit in as much as we can. We get our kids to study. And in turn, maybe America will, we can benefit from this experience in America. They all believe that. And, and one meeting after another, after another, you can, see the, you can see the realization come over more and more Asian people's eyes that the people who run the city council in Sacramento and South Sacramento are not going to do one damn thing about the violence against Asian people other than to say, hey, don't get a gun because that wouldn't be good if you tried to protect yourself. There's an epidemic of black on Asian violence. Ask an Asian person. And if you get like the third generation Asian person, the one that wants to be like that chick we just heard about there, they do a lot of preambling. They, sometimes they even like to call themselves people of color so they can be down with the cause. But don't let them do the preambling about causes and solutions. Just say, listen, are, black peop are Asian people victims of black violence and crime and criminality and mayhem and chaos or not? Ask anybody in San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Berkeley, the whole thing out there. Ask them. You know, the Asians can be very circumspect. So maybe they won't tell you the first time, or the second time. Maybe they'll tell you the third time if you ask the right way and you're patient enough to get the answer. We've done so many stories on that here. I don't understand how a woman could call the show up and write a letter to the show and go, oh my God, the white people, they're driving me crazy. So she described herself as a big mouth who didn't like math. Then all of a sudden, 20 years later, she figures out that she didn't like it when people were making fun of her, poking fun of her. That's the way high school kids are. They poke fun at each other. And if you're a, a self-described loudmouth, what the hell were you doing with your loudmouth? Were you just taking it when people were poking fun at your nationality? Were you giving as good as you get? Were you instigating as much as you got? Or was this just another case of white people messing with pox? Just like they did at Columbia University. 
That's what's next for Code Switch. Go out to Morningside Heights and do a big show about how all the white people suck because they're always doing stuff. I, you know, one of my buddies told me Dave Chappelle did a, I, I'm, I think he sent it to me. I haven't seen it yet. One of the Brex Mill and Exile crew. He said Dave Chappelle did a bit on gentrification. The gist of the bit is Dave Chappelle going, oh my God. Get those white people out of here. They're bringing all the nice stuff to our neighborhood. They're fixing up the house, the roads, the stores. Oh my God, it's going to be hell around here. I mean, is that is that what's next for this Chinese woman? The code switch, go to Morningside Heights at Columbia, join together with the preeminent student organization in the United States of America, the Pre-Law Pox at Columbia and Barnard. And how we got to make sure we don't hurt any feelings when we go through Harlem to find the evidence for those three kids who killed that white woman. You know, sometimes we, I just run out of words for how crazy it is. So here's our challenge. Our challenge is we can't be as crazy and as insane as the people that we are exposing. We can't do that. We have to figure out a way to be a little bit detached from this so we can talk about it in a rational and persuasive fashion, which probably I fail to do 90% of the time around here. That means no obscenities, no vulgarities, no generalizations, no hypotheticals. Let's stick to the facts. We've got so many of them. I don't know why so many people are so eager to run away from the facts all the time. And this morning I had to tell, tell somebody, they said, Colin, you know, you got you, you know, you you you're you know, you're really good at exposing this stuff, but you never talk about solutions. I had to break the bad news to her. I said, listen, this is something I've talked about 350 times on my podcast, my videos, and my books. Should I make it 351? Believe it or not, some people don't respond to me when I give them the old snark. Sorry about that. So let's just have a little reminder what you can do. I think, first of all, we have to come to terms with the fact that there is no magic bullet. You are not going to be able to push a button that solves all this black violence and dysfunction overnight. There is no one thing that will change it. Well, Colin, we got to get the incentives for the incentivizers so they'll have some incentives to obey the incentives. Then we'll put all the incentives together and everybody will just incentivize our butts off into nirvana. No. And then another person said on Twitter this morning, they asked me, well, Colin, how can we get this message out to more people? How will we reach 50 to 100,000 people a day? Okay, maybe that's not 10 million a day like Beyonce, but it's not chicken feed. And these videos, they go in weird places. Like we're not talking to the same people every day. I think a lot, and, and when, you know, I'm just talking about the people that we reach with one view. Like there's a lot of people at lunch. A lot of people watch these videos together. They're at lunch. Somebody will say, hey, let's go in the parking lot and watch you know, Colin's video or listen to Colin's podcast. So all of a sudden, my podcast will say, have a certain number of views and it'll be like, bing, bam, boom, multiply it by six because that's how many people are watching it. But really the question is, the guy was saying, well, what can we do to get more people to watch it? No, there is no we. It's just you. What can you do? Are you going to want to, you want to be the general now? You want to be like the one to stand up on the mountain? Like, hey, everybody, go down there. You go over there. We'll all do this together. No, that's not the way our world is working. It just isn't. 
So the question is, what can you do? What can I do? So you put aside the magic bullet. All of a sudden, we're just talking about small things. Yeah. Generals start off as privates. So we talk about small things. We're talking about sharing, liking, subscribing, commenting, sending this stuff through email, talking about sending my, sending my emails around to your friends on email. And if you're not on my email right now, I don't even know why you're listening to this. When we're getting deplatformed right and left, we're, we're, move, we're behind enemy lines. You've got to get on my email list so we can stay in touch. That's a plain fact. And so we have a lot of people listening these these podcasts, a lot of people watching the videos, but it's all like what you can do. You know what? So somebody says, what can I do, Colin? Well, you do what you can. You do what you can. And if you're in a cubicle, if you're a cop, a firefighter, or you know, a teacher, an EMT, or a big defense contractor, you're sitting in a cubicle. You don't want to get fired for this stuff, okay? We want you on the battlefield. We don't want you sidelined. So if you can't do as much as you want to do, help the people who can. Talking about putting a few shekels in my cup, a few coins in my cup, keeping this platform going. Yeah, PayPal just kicked us off the other day. So we're, you know, we're switching. To, I think we're going to be on Subscribestar and Zelle and a couple of others. We might even get our cryptocurrency up so we're going to replace that but that's really important i mean that's how this thing exists there are no magic bullets for me there is no white knight for me that's going to ride in and say hey colin here here's some here's a big advertising contract now you don't have to bother your listeners anymore so here's the thing if you think what we're doing is important if you want to see it happening you have got to do what a lot of other people on this platform do. Just chip in a couple bucks when you can. If it's two bucks, I don't care. If it's five bucks, I don't care. There are some people that can do a lot more. They do. I'm very grateful for every single one. But we're really at the point where I kind of agree with some people who say that. It's like, okay, Colin, what do we do now? Well, we, it's all up to you. What you are going to do, we are past the point of being passive and just sitting around. It's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to expose this? I mean, we have Ken Brakey. Man, I got to get Kent on the air here. Ken Brakey, when he started watching our videos, listening to our podcasts, he got inspired to write a book. He's now on his fourth book. We've got the bar guy who writes the barbershop songs. <laughs> He wrote, he wrote the, the Christmas. If you haven't, you know, people are still listening to the Christmas album. It's that funny. And they're still buying it over at cdbaby.com. So, but he's written like 10 or 15 more songs. I'll, you'll hear one on this, this album, this, this podcast. Very, very funny songs. People listen to them and they just can't believe how good they are. So he's doing what he can do guy named wide awake he does graphics he just sends me stuff on graphics other people other and there's so many people who help out rick sends me articles how many people how many hundreds of you guys send me stories every day if you want to take it to a new level maybe send that story to your local talk show host with a little note saying hey colin flaherty's been exposing this for a long time better than anybody else
That works. That's how I got on Sean Hannity. Or call up yourself. Tell, talk about it yourself. Call up Michael Savage. Call up Mark Levin. Call Sean Hannity. Call Glenn Beck. And remember all the stuff we talked about. No obscenities, no vulgarities, no generalizations, no stereotypes. Just stick to the facts. What is happening, how it's part of a pattern. And the pattern has meaning. And the meaning is there's a lot of bad business in this country that a lot of people are in denial, deceit, and delusion about. And as long as they stay that way, oh yeah, the black kids will never get angry. Talk to you tomorrow. White men pray on our poor dark skin. Brawling